As I was alluding to before, I think today's going to be a challenge. I was, as I was preparing for this, there were some things that were going through my mind about not only the news in Orlando, but some other high-profile news events, um, you know, that's right in our backyard, speaking specifically of the, the trial and the case in, at Stanford. And so when, when you get to teachings from Jesus, like, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, I, I'm just going to warn you right now that I'm going to do my best to try to share with you what I think Jesus is saying with the context and the language that we do around here. But I'm going to be honest with you up front. I think it's going to be hard because it's going to start touching on some things. And again, with Orlando, with Stanford, and a myriad and dozens of other cases that we could probably look to where there are offenders and there are victims I just want to prepare you for that. I'm not proposing that what this teaching is, um, is the answer for how we are to be merciful. I'm just simply proposing this is what I think is the best reading and what may be going on behind the words of the text. And we're going to try to now wrestle together as a community as we have done to try to figure out how does that teaching and how does that principle actually work itself out when it comes to news stories like the ones that we're living in right now. Being a follower of Jesus is not for the wimpy. I'm reminded of this quote by G.K. Chesterton, who said that Christianity was not tried and found wanting, but was found difficult and left untried. Let me say that again. He says that Christianity wasn't tried and found wanting, meaning people really gave it a go, and then like, eh, it didn't really work out. He's saying that it was found difficult. You're like, Wait, you want me to do what? You want me to love my enemy? You want me to be merciful? You want me to do what? And left untried, meaning I'm not doing that. I'm not giving that a shot. And I think today is going to fall into a little bit of that sentiment. Difficult. And the challenge is, are we going to try this? And see what happens to us in our souls as a result. And if followers of Jesus could attempt to try to do this, what could possibly happen in this world as a result? Say this with me. Happy are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Now again, just as a little bit of review, these are not attitudes that we are to have. Danielle did a fantastic job opening us up in the Beatitudes. These are not things that are thrown out there that hopefully you will attain to. Attitudes that you are to be, which is oftentimes how it is thought about, these are descriptors, they're attributes of people who are in the kingdom of God. Now, there's a little bit of a paradox there because hopefully we are striving to live and participate in those attributes and those characteristics so that we can be a part of God's movement and God's kingdom and God's rule and reign here on earth and to be representatives of that. But they're not primarily about aspiring to some sort of moral code. They are, are you a part of the movement of Jesus? And then one last note that I'd like to share with this 
uh, beatitude. This is now our fifth week of the beatitudes. This is the only beatitude, this is the only happy R that is 100% reciprocal. The word mercy and mercy shows up both for the beginning and the end of the beatitude. Happy are the merciful, for they will receive that very same thing. If you remember from last week, we talked a little bit about a paradox. Uh, Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Happy are those who mourn, they will be comforted. And mourning and comforting don't seem to go together. They're opposites. This beatitude is the only one that reciprocates one to one. That which is in that direction is now coming back to you in the same direction. And I think that's going to play a part in what's really going on here. The Greek word behind the word merciful is the word eleemones, which made me want to title this, you know, when life give you, gives you eleemones, but uh, that wasn't, that was a little bit of a stretch. It was a little bit too far. That would have been great. It would have been great, but it was just a little bit of a stretch. The word mercy, eleemones, mercy, we're going to be walking through a bunch of doors. This word is huge. And fascinatingly enough, it only shows up twice in the New Testament. Here in Matthew chapter 5 and then again in Hebrews. This word mercy is so huge, even our own dictionary definition of the word mercy goes through a whole litany of different definitions, which includes things like forgiving, compassionate, clement, plying, um, p- uh, pitying, forbearing, lenient, humane. I mean, this list just goes on. Benevolent. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to go through a bunch of doors and try to grasp at a bunch of different definitions and see if we can pull together some nuances of what this word is, what it meant, and how it was used and leveraged, not only in this world, but in the world uh, of the ancient Greeks, as well as in the first century. So, This word merciful is a huge, huge word, and we want to take some time to kind of dig into uh, a little bit of what may possibly be going on. Now, the other thing that's going on is you, if you take a look at the translations, there's this phraseology that exists there, for they will be shown mercy. So blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive or shall receive or they shall obtain. Now, part of the reason for the translation of that is as you should all know by now, at least if you've been around Spark for a while, that the translation, the correspondent from one language to another is tricky business. It takes a lot of uh, thoughtfulness and it takes that huge word that we talked about on May 8th, hermeneutics. So what does this mean? Well, another reason why there's a difference of translation in there is because that phrase, the phraseology, for they will be given or for they will be shown or for they will receive, actually doesn't exist in the original Greek. It's a very quick and very short summative kind of punch. Literally, happy the merciful because they mercy. I mean, if you were to translate that word for word, there is no phrase in there that means for they shall receive. There's an active word, which is the merciful one. Blessed are those or happy are those who are actively participating in this activity of mercy. And then the second word, the exact same word, is just in a different form, which means that that same mercy is going to come back upon you. And so translators have to work at, for they will be shown, 
for they will be given, for they will receive. There's a lot of different possible ways of how you are going to translate this. What seems to be happening is that there's a symbiotic relationship between the giving, the outpouring, and the returning and the receiving. The giving and the receiving seem to be functioning together. It's not necessarily a, if you do this, then this. It seems to be, this is happening, and this is happening all at the same time. The two are hand in hand. They're symbiotic. Now, symbiotic is just a fancy work, sim meaning together, and bios meaning life, living life together. The definition of symbiotic relationship is a special type of interaction or a relationship between species. Many of you are going to be familiar with an image like this because a new movie is coming out that was based upon an old movie that had this particular image. When I think about symbiotic relationships, honestly, this is what I think about. A beautiful, life-giving relationship between different species, right? Yeah. And one is needed for the other. So what's going on in this passage seems to be, as we've talked about before, not necessarily an if, therefore, then, but some sort of these two things are happening together at the same time as in some sort of dance. Giving mercy, receiving mercy, having it returned unto you is kind of one and the same thing. So what is this word, eleemones, not lemons? Well, to do that, we have to go to some Greek philosophers and to some Greek thinking to help us maybe dig into what was this word in that thinking, and then we're going to compare it a little bit to what this word may have meant in the Hebrew thinking. And of course, it's just not going to be spark unless we quote Princess Bride. Yeah, that's smart. Let me put it this way. Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. Really? So Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, they are absolutely morons, according to Vicini from The Princess Bride. But they do make up a foundation. And maybe one day we'll spend a lot of time talking about the philosophical backgrounds of the New Testament. These guys are old dead guys that talk extensively, wrote extensively about things that we talk about today. For example, they had an extensive conversation about what does it mean to only live once. They had extensive conversations about, you know, coming back and returning. They had extensive conversations about the fear of what you're not getting as a result. And ultimately, some of them uh, came to some conclusions that they just simply didn't know. So if you were... If you're ever concerned or curious about what the ancient philosophers were talking about, we've got it down pretty pat right here. One of the things that they've talked about, and those of you who have studied rhetoric or communication, you know about this already, are the three different ways in which to have a conversation, in which to have uh, communication. Pathos, logos, ethos. And of course, there's different ways of pronouncing them. Pathos, the idea that there's emotion, that there's the heart. Logos is the logic and the intellect. Ethos is your character. Can we trust you? Are you dependable? Do you have integrity? Now, without going into a whole bunch of depth in that, there's uh, modern people and people who study this utilize this as a way of how do we communicate with another person? Why is that relevant for this particular talk on mercy? Most of the Greeks, from what I understand, categorized mercy 
not in the sense of logos or ethos, categorized mercy in the category of pathos, category of emotion. This is a category that doesn't think rationally this is going to come into play. This is a category that doesn't think about your own personal character upholding that which is right. This is a word, this is an ethic that sits deep in the category of emotion, feeling, sensing, having that part of you well up with inside of you. And it works itself out in ways such as concern for the welfare of others. You're not necessarily logically thinking about what the other person has done or did not do to get there. Notice it's not in the category of logos. You're not necessarily concerned about what you have done to get them to that place. Ethos. You are fundamentally concerned ultimately with their welfare. Your heart is connected with them. Pathos. One writer put it this way. Mercy is the emotion roused by contact with an affliction that comes undeservedly on someone else. Mercy is the emotion that is roused by contact with an affliction which comes undeservedly on somebody else, on someone else. Which is why when we see images like this and when we get to news stories, Something within us rises up and says, I feel an emotion, a strong emotion, whether that's hatred, anger, um, disappointment. There's a whole bunch of emotions that well up because what we see, what we see here is an affliction that has come upon the people that is an undeserved one. And I feel something. And that feeling is that I want to now do something about that thing. That is what the philosophers talked about as mercy, an emotion that wells up because something, an affliction has happened to somebody else that they did not deserve. The Greeks went on then to describe that this mercy started to get taken and manipulated and played a little bit to another category outside of pathos and logos and ethos to another category called phobos, which is the word for fear. Fear or horror. This, by the way, is the moon, or I don't know if we can call it a moon, the moon of Mars. There's two moons of Mars. One of them is called phobos. Uh, Phobos is uh, mythically the son of Ares and uh, Venus. Um, And that's why they named it that moon. And this category of fear began to take mercy and put it into that category as well. And some of these ancient Greek philosophers began talking about mercy being leveraged because it's an emotion that you're trying to get somebody to do something for you. And leveraging it with the idea of fear that I have now done something wrong. Some affliction has come As a result of me, I've done something wrong. I've violated the law. And now I'm standing before the court and I am afraid. I am fearful that I am going to be sentenced to something that I honestly don't want to have to go through. And so what do I do? I begin to leverage mercy 
and you throw yourself at the mercy of the court. And you say, judge, please, I beg of you, please don't be harsh in my punishment. Now, this gets into all sorts of judicial law, of course, and we still argue about this today. What, is it, what does it mean for a court to be merciful to an offender? This, again, is part of the ugh, frustrating thing that we're all in with the current news reports. Ultimately, these ancient Greeks understood that mercy was then not just a feeling, but it was a strategy for the administration of justice. And they began to recognize that if done appropriately, mercy could be leveraged for leniency in punishment. And so they had all sorts of different kinds of ways in which mercy was an emotion, and it lived there again, not in logic, not in ethics, but in emotion. Because it lived there, it could be leveraged for leniency. Please, I throw myself at the mercy of the court. Please do not be harsh. I beg of you. I admit what I've done is wrong, etc., etc., or whatever. And you use the rhetoric to try to get leniency. As a result of this kind of play out, the Greeks thought, mercy's stupid. Who wants that? First of all, there were some Greeks who thought any emotional part of you was really not wise to do. It wasn't going to leverage the very best kind of life for you, so you didn't want to be overly emotional. And part of the reason for that is because now this emotion could ultimately be leveraged for your gain. If you, could, if you could somehow get the emotion from somebody else or get the mercy from somebody else, then it could be leveraged for you. So that's what's being pulled in when we hear this word mercy. Happy are the merciful people who have an emotional response to somebody else, for they will receive or they will be returned mercy. There's something about that definition that doesn't quite make it for me. Here's why. The definition that we've just talked about from a Greek perspective, a Hellenistic perspective, which, by the way, we're all inheritors of, is transactional. It's like, if you do this, then somehow you're going to get something out of it. And as I mentioned before in the opening, the way that Jesus is using this phraseology feels much more like a symbiotic relationship, that the two are going hand in hand. And it's not if, therefore. It is these two things are somehow connected together, driving in the same direction. The other thing that gets it for me is, obviously, what we have in the New Testament is in Greek. But one of the ways that we can find some nuances is to go back through the language translation and say, what language would Jesus have been pulling from? What words would Jesus have been pulling from from the original Hebrew? And how has this word mercy been translated through the Hebrew and the Greek all the way down to our modern English word mercy? And when you do that work, you start to explode, open this definition of mercy into something far bigger, far greater, far more powerful than just simply a transaction in a court of law. One of the first usages of the word mercy is found in Exodus chapter 34. 
For those of you who know the story and who have been with us, Exodus is all about a covenantal relationship that Israel has with God, with Yahweh, the one who has saved them. And so when you see the commandments, if you recall from our teachings, these commandments are not, you better do this. These commandments are covenantal promises that we give to one another because we're in this beautiful relationship. And here's what um, Exodus 34, 6 says. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, just that phrase is packed full of really deep, rich, significant terms. And one of them is this word, chesed, which is later translated into the word mercy. Now, if you've been around Spark for a little bit, or if you've been around Hebrew speakers, you know or have heard that this word chesed has zero correspondent in English. It is such a huge, encompassing, covenantal, loving kindness forever loving, forever caring. It, it's just massive. It has no correspondent. So somewhere along the line, somebody decided to translate this word chesed into the word mercy. And again, when we use the word mercy, we kind of think sometimes transactional or we have those other Greek definitions. But you pull back a little bit further, and what you see here is this word mercy in the original Hebrew is translating a word that means, I am with you. You are mine. You belong to me, and I belong to you. And we're together in this. And no matter what has transpired in the past, uh, failure, golden calf, uh, exodus, uh, you're complaining in the desert, no matter what has transpired in the past, whatever that has been, we're still not just friends, We're covenanted partners together for life. We're family. And even all of those words fall short of the beautiful connection that God is attempting to make with his people. This word, translated mercy, sounds much more like a symbiotic relationship. God is giving us mercy. We are extending that same relationship back to him, the same loving kindness going in both directions. A couple other insights. The other word that's used to translate the word mercy is the word racham, which means compassion. And for those of you who remember a couple years ago, we talked about compassion. The word racham actually means womb. And the word compassion means to carry somebody else's pains, hurts, emotions, feelings inside of you. This is the kind of mercy that says, whatever it is that you are dealing with, whatever it is that you are carrying, I am carrying it within me as well. Another word that is used to translate into the word mercy is the word chen. Anybody here named Hannah or Anna or Anne comes from this word that means grace. And this word grace means like this little extra favor, this little extra push. I'm behind you. I'm cheering you on. I am for you. And the other word that's used to translate into this word mercy is the word brit. And the word brit means covenant, relationship. 
Now, you take all of these words that are translated into Greek, into the same word mercy, you start to realize that mercy, when Jesus is using it, is pulling in compassion and kindness and graciousness and covenant and loving kindness and forever relationship, kind of like our own English definition. It's explosive. Mercy. It's not just about a transaction. It's about you and I. We are together. We are one. We are family. We are together. Now, there are only two um, occurrences of this word mercy in the New Testament. The first is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. But the other one is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Now read this with what we've just talked about, the fullness of God's covenant, relationship, kindness, extension, pulling you into the family, because Hebrews sums this up in this phrase. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, all of us. This is talking about the incarnation, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful. There's that same word, and faithful high priest in service to God. In other words, the whole movement of Jesus in the incarnation is so that he can be with us to experience what we experience, to know our failings, our hurts, our pains, our sufferings, to be covenanted with us. He is taking on that which we experience, that which we feel, that which disappoints our hearts, that which causes us to be lonely that which causes us to question our own identity or purpose. All of those suffering things, the challenges that we have with pain and evil in this world, he takes that on himself, and the word that Hebrews uses to describe that is the word merciful. So when we hear the phrase, happy or blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, it is not just that you extend leniency to an offender. That you are somehow not going to mete out the full punishment that this person deserves. Although that is one definition of mercy. This definition of mercy, and I told you this was going to be hard. This definition of mercy looks at an offender. Somebody who has done you wrong. Somebody who has reaped evil in this world. Somebody who has violated the commands and been really, really bad. And says to that person, I know your pain. You are still a part of my family. You are human, just like I am human. And something about what you just did extends from probably some hurts and some pains and some struggles that I also carry. Happy are the merciful. Because when I do that, rather than demonizing that other person, I'm somehow recognizing the humanity that is also within me. Does this make sense? This is the symbiotic relation of, relationship of extending mercy to somebody else. And as you do that mercy, as you extend to them compassion and kindness, and acceptance into your family as a part of who you are, you are at the same time recognizing what's also in you. 
That is the relationship. I'll close with a quote from Frank Rogers who wrote this uh, wonderful book, Practicing Compassion, which has the same ideas in it. And I think he sums this up well. The path of compassion points to another way. To be sure, it is a way that stands up to violation, protects the vulnerable, empowers the victimized, holds offenders accountable, and restrains the unrepentant. And I like that he put that in there, right? Like, thank you for saying that and voicing that. However, it does so in ways that refuse to demonize the other, even those whose deeds are monstrous. I told you this was going to be hard. To do so in a way that refuses to demonize the other, even those whose deeds are monstrous, and pull to any news report you want. That recognize the suffering of the attacker, though hidden underneath his or her attempts to inflict pain, and that invite the offender's restoration to the community on the condition he or she makes amends, even if only symbolically and acts humanely. So it's still calling people to repentance, but it's to recognize and humanize the other rather than to demonize. We can meet adversaries with empowered constraint, empathic understanding, and a genuine sense of restorative care. And here's the here's this punch. When we do, we retain our own humanity, even when others remain marred by the inhumane. Happy are the merciful, because you will receive, it will be put back upon you. You will become, you will continually be that kind of person who receives mercy. When you extend to somebody else, that compassion, you are taking that same sense of compassion and mercy and kindness upon yourself to no longer be the kind of evil that you see in this world. I think it was Rene Girard from Stanford who mentioned, and I think I quoted this a couple Sundays ago, be careful who you make your enemies for you will become like them. And as soon as we look to somebody and says, they are the enemy, something within us becomes that evil, that dark. And it feels, and again, like I mentioned, this is hard, and I don't know if I quite fully grasp it myself, but it feels like what Jesus is saying, even to those people. Blessed are those who give mercy and compassion because that's what you will become, and that's what you will receive yourself. So my friends... Consider, consider the symbiotic relationship. Consider the way in which this world works and how evil is continually perpetuated and how good can overcome it. Consider carefully how kindness and compassion actually win. We say that, we say that love wins, we say that compassion wins, we say that kindness wins, we say that light will never be put out by dark, but then we have to ask the question, how does that happen? Well, (laughs) Maybe we haven't asked that question very hard because maybe one of the ways in which this happens is by us looking straight into an offender's eyes and say, you are still a part of this family. I will extend to you mercy. And again, as Frank Rogers says, not at the expense of punishment and, and, and uh, redemption and repentance and all that stuff. 
but to say that I will not demonize you no matter how tempting that may be. And as I do that, I refuse to demonize myself as well. So consider. Consider carefully what this phrase actually means on the ground in real life with real news reports and with real people that have hurt you. And if you take this personally, consider maybe the people in your life who have done you wrong, who you have demonized, who have you said, they are not invited to Thanksgiving anymore. Consider those people. And consider what it is that has been happening to you in your own soul as a result of your demonization of them. And consider carefully the words of Jesus that are so difficult and probably left untried, which is to hmm, extend mercy, kindness, chesed, compassion, understanding to them so that you will become that kind of person. I told you it was going to be hard. Let's figure out really how this works, what this means, what kind of voices we could be for the way and the movement of Jesus. And as we do this and as we practice this, hopefully we bring more and more of the kingdom here. Amen? God, thank you for your words again. And I just want to confess to you, Lord, I don't know how accurate I know I am being. So in the midst of me doing my very, very best, I pray that whatever faults or failings of understanding that you would redeem even that and help us all together figure out what it means to be merciful, um, that we can strive to exemplify these kinds of traits and characteristics because we want your kingdom here and we need to fight against darkness and evil and hatred and discompassion. So by your power, by your spirit, help us to do that in this world. As hard as it may be, God, give us strength. Give us strength to do this in the way that you desire it to be done. And I pray in your name. Amen.